This program has been approved for 1 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. New Innovations in Heart Failure. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. William Withering was a true Renaissance man. Born in England in the 18th century, he was the son of a surgeon and trained as a physician himself. In addition, he was a famed botanist, chemist, and a geologist. In his medical practice at Birmingham General Hospital, he noticed that patients with dropsy, the old term for edema or heart failure, had remarkable benefit from herbal remedy derived from the foxglove plant. He was then able to deduce that digitalis was the key ingredient responsible for the benefits and subsequently used it to treat over 150 patients. He published his findings, including the beneficial effects, the adverse effects, and the recommended uses of digitalis in his 1784-85 book, An Account of the Foxglove and Some of Its Medicinal Uses. We have many new therapies since the discovery of digitalis, which is fortunate because an estimated 6 million American adults are living with heart failure, and the incidence continues to increase. Heart failure is considered the end stage of cardiovascular disease with a very high morbidity and mortality. Studies report that up to half of individuals diagnosed with heart failure will die within five, five years of diagnosis. That's a five-year mortality higher than many cancers. But heart failure often doesn't get the same level of press or urgency as cancer. Famed Welsh cardiologist Sir Thomas Lewis said in 1933, the very essence of cardiovascular practice is the early detection of heart failure. 
With the increasing burden of heart failure in our medical community, the American Heart Association and American Car College of Cardiology issued an updated heart failure clinical practice guideline in 2022, emphasizing the prevention of heart failure, particularly in our at-risk population. For example, patients like with hypertension, diabetes, or obesity, just to name a few conditions. Today, I've invited two of Ohio State University's cardiovascular experts to take us through the new therapies available to our heart failure patients and the practice-changing guidelines to help us provide the best possible care for our patients. First, I have heart failure cardiology, cardiologist and assistant professor of internal medicine, Dr. Ajay Valakati. Ajay specializes in cardiac amyloidosis. Second, I have Dr. Indra Bol, who is also an assistant professor of internal medicine and heart failure trained cardiologist. His clinical interests include cardiogenic shock, mechanical circulatory support, and heart failure transplant. Ajay, Indra, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Jinying. Now, I may be dating myself, but back when I trained, heart failure was differentiated into systolic or diastolic heart failure. Ajay, can you explain the new terminology, alphabet soup? Like, what is HEFPATH and HEFREF? So, the classification of heart failure is based on the ejection fraction, EF. Mm -hmm. If EF is less than 40%, it's referred to as HREF, heart mm -hmm. failure with reduced ejection fraction. If EF is greater than 50%, that's referred to as HPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. EF of 41 to 49 would be heart failure with mildly reduced or mid-range ejection mm -hmm. fraction. And there's another term called as improved EF. So if you have an EF less than 40% to begin with, mm -hmm. and then on the subsequent echocardiograms, if the EF has improved to more than 40%, that would be heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Okay, wow. So four different categories now. Now, Indra, has much changed in the heart failure care in the past decade? Have we made much of an impact on that mortality? Yeah, a lot has changed in terms of therapeutics available to treat our patients, but unfortunately, uh, the morbidity and mortality associated with heart failure has only increased, likely due to uh, increasing comorbidities that increase the risk of heart failure. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's unfortunate. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, along with the slides and instructions to receive your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about our program, please don't hesitate to send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Ajay? Thank you everyone for joining in for the webcast. Today we'll be talking about new innovations in heart failure. Indra and I do not have any disclosures related to the current topic. Objectives of the talk today would be to discuss pharmacologic management of heart failure, specifically talking about SGL2 inhibitors, sacubitril valsartan, and ivabradin. We'll also provide guidance on using these new therapies for treating heart failure. Coming to the problem, once we reach the age of 40, lifetime risk of developing heart failure is 1 in 5. And you can see here, for a hospitalized heart failure patient, the likelihood of getting hospitalized again for heart failure at 6 months is close to 50%. And for a hospitalized heart failure patient, 5-year survival is close to 50%. And with each heart failure hospitalization, the survival goes down. This was the classification that I was talking about, which is based on ejection fraction. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is EF less than 
EF more than 50 percent is referred to as HPEF. Heart failure with mildly reduced or mid range would be 41 to 49 and EF which you start with an EF less than 40 percent and if the EF improves to more than 40 percent on subsequent echocardiogram, you call it as heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Now I would like to spend a few minutes here talking about heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. One of the first trials that was published was in 1987. This was the consensus heart failure trial. Patients with advanced heart failure were randomized to receive enalopril or placebo and were followed for 6 months and there was 40 percent reduction in mortality. Then in 1991, we had the SOLD heart failure trial in which patients with mild heart failure were randomized to receive enalopril or placebo and were followed for 3 years and there was 16 percent reduction in mortality. By 1999, we had the MERIT heart failure trial which was metoprolol succinate compared to placebo in heart failure patients and there was 34 percent reduction in mortality. RAILS was spironolactone versus placebo in symptomatic heart failure patients and there was 30 percent reduction in mortality. So by 1999, we had ACE inhibitor, beta blocker and aldosterone antagonist as the treatments for heart failure. In 2003, CHARM alternate trial came out and in this particular study, we looked at heart failure patients who had allergy or were intolerant to ACE inhibitors and there was 20 percent reduction in cardiovascular death. In 2004, a HEF trial came out and in this self-identified African American patients were randomized to get hydralazine and isodel on the top of the standard heart failure medications versus placebo and at the end of the follow-up duration there was 43 percent reduction in mortality. So going talking about the beta blockers, there's three beta blockers which are which are evidence based that would be bisoprolol, carbidolol and metoprolol succinate and this is what we give to patients in a clinical practice too. Spironolactone or eplerinone, both of which are aldosterone antagonists are recommended in symptomatic heart failure patients, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, EF less than 40 percent, NYHF function class 2 to 4 and in, we want to be sure that the kidney function is okay and the potassium level is not high. So we check a, a chem 6 to begin with and after you start aldosterone antagonist, you check chemistry 3 days later, 1 week later and a month later after starting the medication. If the patients develop hyperkalemia with potassium of more than 5.5, then mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist should be discontinued. So if you look at the heart failure guidelines, this is the 2022 heart failure guidelines and towards the left you can see heart, you can see st step 1 uh, in which they talk about the 4 pillars of heart failure medications and on the 4 pillars you could see sacubitril valsartan and this was presented in the paradigm HF trial and which is what we'll talk about in the next few slides. But before that, let me talk about renin-angiotensin pathway. Angiotensinogen is produced in the liver. It is broken down by renin to angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is converted to angiotensin 2 by angiotensin converting enzyme. ACE inhibitor blocks this. Angiotensin 2 acts on 81 receptor, increases the blood pressure, causes aldosterone release and causes sodium retention. 
Sacubitril is a neprilysin inhibitor. So, neprilysin breaks down natriuretic peptides and adrenomedulin. In the past, they combined ACE inhibitors with neprilysin inhibitor. One such drug was omopatrolat and this was studied in overcome trial. And what they found was there was increased risk of angioedema with omopatrolat. That's believed to be due to increased bradykinin levels. Due to increased angioedema, there were more deaths in the omopatrolat arm compared to placebo and this trial was stopped. The researchers then combined ARB with with neprilysin inhibitor and which is what ARNI is. ARNI, as the name suggests, is angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor. It's a combination of sacubitril and valsartan and sacubitril inhibits the breakdown of natriuretic peptides, adrenomedulin, substance P. Valsartan is an angiotensin receptor blocker. Together, this combination leads to vasodilation, decreased sympathetic nervous system activity, increased parasympathetic nervous system activity and natriuresis. This combination also decreases cardiac fibrosis and the risk of arrhythmia. So, this was studied in the Paradigm HF trial in which over 8000 patients EF less than 40 percent were randomized to get a sacubitril valsartan or an enopril. And the primary endpoint was the composite of cardiovascular death or first heart failure hospitalization. The study was the patients were equally distributed in both the arms. Majority of the patients were NVHA functional class 2 or 3. And at the end of the pre-treatment period or the study was actually stopped early after a median follow-up for 27 months due to overwhelming benefit in the, in the sacubitril valsartan arm. The primary endpoint was decreased by 20 percent. Number to treat was 21. If you look at the secondary outcomes, there was 20% reduction in cardiovascular death, 21% reduction in heart failure hospitalization, and 16% reduction in all-cause mortality. So, benefit across the spectrum. Coming to contraindications of sacubitril valsartan, patients who have angioedema with ACE inhibitor or ARP should not be getting it. In pregnancy, there is a risk of teratogenic effects, so you should not be giving it to pregnant females. And concomitant administration with ACE inhibitors or an ARB is not recommended. And in the trial, they had a washout period of 36 hours after the last dose of ACE inhibitor. So, that is what we do in real life. We wait for 36 hours before starting the next dose of or the first dose of sacubitril valsartan. Coming to the dosing, there is three different doses of sacubitril valsartan. One is the low dose which is 24 slash 26 medium dose which is 49 slash 51 and then the high dose which is 97 slash 103. In patients who are already taking high dose ACE inhibitors that is more than 10 milligrams of enalopril or high dose of an ARB that is more than 160 milligrams of valsartan, you can start them on 49, 51 milligrams twice daily. In patients who are taking low dose or medium dose of ACE inhibitors that is 10 or less than 10 of enalopril or low or medium dose of an ARB which is 160 or less than 160 milligrams of valsartan or de novo ARNI, you are starting ARNI for the first time or ACE or an ARB knife or elderly patients over the age of 75, you should start with 24-26 twice daily and then try to double the dose of this medication every 2-4 to four weeks to get to a target dose of 97-103 milligrams twice daily. So, one question that commonly is asked is whether 
uh, RNE, which is sacubitril valsartan, improves EF. This was studied in the PROVE-HF trial, where over 794 patients with reduced rejection fraction were started on sacubitril valsartan. And these were de novo heart failure patients, patients who did not get ACE or NARB in the past, and patients who had low anti-proBNP levels. These patients were followed for 12 months, and at the end of 12 months, there was close to 9% improvement in EF, again showing that RNE increases the ejection fraction. And if you look at left ventricular size at the end of diastole or at the end of systole, there was a decrease in the left ventricular size, showing that there is positive remodeling with sacubitril valsartan. So, we talked about paradigm HF, which was stable outpatient heart failure patients. What about hospitalized heart failure patients? This was studied in the Pioneer HF, in which over 800 patients with EF less than 40%, anti-proBNP levels more than 1600 or BNP more than 400, who were hemodynamically stable, so did not need inotrope, and were enrolled within 10 days, were randomized to get sacubitril valsartan or enalopril. The primary endpoint was a change in the anti-proBNP level from baseline to week 4 to week 8. And this study showed significantly greater reduction of BNP in sacubitril valsartan. And the most important or interesting part of it is the reduction in anti-proBNP level was seen as early as one week of starting the treatment. Coming to the safety outcomes, there was no increase in the rates of worsening renal function, hyperkalemia, or symptomatic hypertension between the two groups. And angioedema, there was no significantly increased risk of angioedema in sacubitril valsartana. The rates of drug discontinuation was also similar in both the groups. So, we talked about stable outpatient heart failure patients, hospitalized heart failure patients, what about advanced heart failure patients? This was studied in LIFE trial in which patients, uh, 335 patients with an EF less than 35 elevated natriuretic peptides who needed an inotrope in the last six months or who are currently on it, NVHA function class 4, were randomized to get sacubitril valsartan or valsartan. And the primary endpoint was the change in the NT-proBNP level from baseline to week 24. There was no statically significant difference in anti-proBNP levels uh, between the two groups. And if you look at other outcomes such as days spent outside the hospital or cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, there was no significant difference in that. Hypotension, it was similar in both the groups. There was increased rates of hyperkalemia with sacubitril valsartan when you compare to valsartan. Next, coming to the PRIME study. So, one thing that we normally see in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is the heart can get enlarged and when it gets enlarged, the mitral valves do not coapt and that can lead to mitral regurgitation. So, in PRIME study, patients with reduced ejection fraction and functional MR were randomized to get sacubitril valsartan or valsartan. And the primary endpoint was the change in the effective regurgitant orifice area at 12 months. And at the end of 12 months, there was significant reduction in the regurgitant orifice area. So, the, the size of the mitral regurgitation and also the regurgitant volume was significantly reduced in sacubitril valsartana. 
the number of patients with mitral regurgitation, there was improvement in close to 40 percent of the patients with sacubital valsartan, whereas only 26 percent, 26 percent of the patients had benefit with valsartan, again showing benefit in this patient population. So, what about in arrhythmias? So, does sacubital valsartan have any effect on ventricular arrhythmias? This was studied in a trial, so this were 120 patients with EF less than 40 percent and had remote monitoring device. So, what they did was they first had patients on beta blocker, mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, ACE or ANAP. They followed the patients for 9 months, as follow, checked them for ICD shocks, PVCs and then after 9 months, uh, the patient were switched from ACE or ANAP to ARNI and they were followed for another 9 months. And when you compare the two time periods with ARNI, there was significant reduction in non-sustained ventricular tachycardia in sustained ventricular tachycardia or ICD shocks in number of PVCs per hour and there was increased biventricular pacing. Again, showing that with the, with the remodeling, uh, sacubitral valsartan might actually have an effect on arrhythmias too. So, we talked about reduced rejection fraction. What about preserved rejection fraction? What I talked so far was in patients with reduced rejection fraction. In Paragon HF, heart failure with preserved rejection fraction over 4000 patients with EF more than 45 percent, NYHA functional class 2 to 4, NT pro BNP levels more than 300 or more than 900 if they were in atrial fibrillation. These patients were randomized to receive sacubitral valsartan or valsartan. And the primary endpoint was the composite of total heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular death. And at the end of the follow-up period, there was no significant benefit with ARNI in terms of heart failure hospitalizations comp or, and cardiovascular death. If you specifically looked at heart failure hospitalizations, there was a trend towards benefit. And on subgroup analysis, benefit was seen in patients with EF less than 57 percent. And for some reason, there was benefit more in females compared to males. Here in United States, sacubitral valsartan RNA is approved for all patients with heart failure. And on the FDA package insert, it says that the benefit is most marked in patients at a lower range of EF. So, just to summarize, sacubitral valsartan has shown benefit in outpatient heart failure, that was the paradigm HF. In inpatient heart failure patients, that was the pioneer HF. Life trial did not show benefit for advanced heart failure patients. The proof study showed that it can be beneficial in ACE or an ARB naive patients. Prime study showed benefit in functional mitral regurgitation with reduced rejection fraction patients. In Paragon HF, there is no benefit true per se, but there might be a trend towards decreasing heart failure hospitalizations. Moving on, ivabradin is another drug. This is a selective inhibitor of sinoatrial pacemaker and modulates the funny current. It slows down the sinus rate and unlike beta blockers, it does not have an effect on the myocardial contractility and intracardiac conduction. The main mechanism of action is due to heart rate reduction. This was studied in the SHIFT trial in which there were over 6500 patients with EF less than 35 percent NYHA functional class 2 or 3 and in sinus rhythm with resting heart rates more than 70 beats per minute. Patients were randomized to ivabradin or placebo 
and the primary endpoint was the composite of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization. The follow-up duration was 23 months. Patients were equally distributed in both the arms. Majority of the patients were NVHA functional class 3 and close to 50% of the patients were on beta blockers but only 25% or close 26% were on target dose of beta blockers. The main reasons for not reaching the target dose was hypertension, fatigue, dyspnea and dizziness. At the end of the follow-up period, there was 18% reduction in the primary endpoint. This was predominantly driven by reduction in heart failure hospitalization and heart failure death. And if you look at the subgroup analysis, the benefit was seen in patients with resting heart rate more than 77 beats per minute and not in patients with lower heart rates. Again, showing that the importance of heart rate control in this heart failure with reduced ejection patient. Ivobradin was approved by FDA in 2015 under the brand name Corlinor and it's approved for stable heart failure patients with EF less than 35% in sinus rhythm with resting heart rates more than 70 and patients needed to be on maximal tolerated dose of beta blockers or have a contraindication. And it's important to note that it's not a substitute for a beta blocker. Coming to the contraindications, uh, so acute decompensated heart failure, hypertension, six sinus syndrome, sinoatrial block or third degree AV block, patients who are pacemaker dependent or have hepatic insufficiency, atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, and heart failure preserved ejection fraction are the contraindications for this drug. Now I'll hand it over to Indra to talk about SGL2 inhibitors. Thank you, Ajay. So we'll be talking about the exciting class of medication called SGLT2 inhibitors now. So first, a little bit about the birth of this class of medication. There was a compound that was identified in 1835 called fluorazine, which was essentially isolated from the bark of the apple tree. This compound was found later to inhibit glucose reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule of the nephron. Much later, synthetic oral derivatives of fluorazine were found to lower hemoglobin A1C levels without contributing to hypoglycemia in patients. This class of medication was studied in a cardiovascular outcomes trial, a type of trial mandated by the FDA to prove that novel antihyperglycemic medications do not have adverse effects on uh, cardiovascular outcomes. So the first cardiovascular outcome trial with SGLT2 inhibitors was this study in the New England Journal of Medication, uh, Medicine, uh, Empaglifosin Cardiovascular Outcomes and Mortality in Type 2 Diabetics, also known as Empareg. So in Empareg, there were 7,000 patients with high cardiovascular risk specifically those with known coronary artery disease, prior stroke, or peripheral arterial disease, and had to have type 2 diabetes that were followed for a median of three years. The patients were randomized to either empagliflozin or placebo. And the primary outcome we were looking at was the combination of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, or stroke. If you look at the rate of the primary outcome, you'll see that it's reduced with empagliflozin from 12.1% in placebo to 10% with empagliflozin. This outcome was statistically significant, demonstrating superiority of empagliflozin with regards to cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, or stroke rate. 
In addition, the benefit of this uh, outcome was driven primarily by cardiovascular death reduction with an absolute risk reduction of 2.2% and a relative risk reduction of almost 40%. There was a significant reduction in heart failure hospitalization rate, again with a relative risk reduction of 35%. Another compound, dapagliflozin, was also studied in a cardiovascular outcome trials in patients with type 2 diabetes the so-called DECLARE-TIMI-58 trial. In this larger trial, there were 17,000 patients with uh, high cardiovascular risk and diabetes who were followed for a median of four years. The patients were randomized to dapagliflozin or placebo. In this, we looked at efficacy and safety outcomes. So the efficacy outcome was the same, cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, or stroke. There was another efficacy outcome, which is cardiovascular death or the risk of heart failure hospitalization, which was studied piggybacking on the signal of reduced heart failure hospitalization from Empereg. So regarding the efficacy outcomes, the primary, initial primary outcome of cardiovascular death, stroke, and myocardial infarction, this was not significant for superiority with the hazard ratio crossing the line of unity, the confidence interval. However, this patient population was lower risk than Empereg. So it's thought that uh, given some of the other outcomes that were beneficial in the same, uh, same direction, it's felt that the lower risk population maybe did not generate as many outcomes. Regarding the outcome of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization, this was reduced with dapagliflozin compared to placebo, and this was highly statistically significant. This outcome was primarily driven by a market reduction in heart failure hospitalization. A little bit about how SGLT2 inhibitors work now. So here you'll see a figure of uh, a nephron. And within the nephron, we see the glomerulus and uh, the tubules, proximal commonality tubule and the distal tubule. So first, let me have you focus here on this red box. So you'll see that SGLT2 inhibitors reduce uh, the reabsorption of sodium and glucose in the proximal convoluted tubule, thus leading to increased excretion of both sodium and glucose. As the sodium transits distally towards the distal convoluted tubule, the macula densa cells uh, juxtaposed to the renal glomerulus actually cause a reduction in the uh, afferent arterial uh, size, essentially causing vasoconstriction, which you'll see here. This is important because it reduces blood flow through the glomerulus, which can reduce the glomerular filtration rate. So uh, we see here in this trial that SGLT2 inhibitor use was actually associated at, with, within 14 days of treatment with um, a, a GFR decrease of three. In addition, almost 13% of patients had more than a 20% decrease in the GFR after starting SGLT2 inhibitors. So what does this mean? Is this something that's harmful or potentially indicates a signal of benefit? So what we see is actually the benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors on cardiovascular outcomes was concentrated in those patients who had an initial eGFR dip. So it's thought that the e initial decline in, in GFR 
actually is, is potentially uh, a marker of patients who may benefit from this outcome and, and also can reduce uh, the risk of uh, the, the outcome of hyperfiltration with interglomerulus, which leads to a reduction in chronic kidney disease progression with this class of medications. Now looking specifically at the heart fair patient populations. So as noted previously, we looked at two trials in which uh, patients with high cardiovascular risk from atherosclerosis were studied with this class of medication demonstrating positive signals in heart failure. Now we're specifically isolating it to patients with heart failure. The first of these to come out was a so-called DAPA-HF trial, which looked at patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. So in this trial, we looked at patients with reduced ejection fraction, those of ejection fraction 40% or less, who were symptomatic with NYHA class two to four symptoms, and uh, an elevated natriuretic peptide level. Important exclusions of the DAPA-HF trial were patients with uh, chronic hypotension, patients with uh, severe chronic kidney disease, here defined as a GFR less than 30, and finally patients with type 1 diabetes. In DAPA-HF, the key baseline characteristics of the patient to note so this trial had about 23% females, 70% uh, white, 23% Asian, and 5% black patients. The majority of the patients were NYHA class two, with about a third class three and minimal class four patients. And notably, only 42% of these patients had diabetes. Remember that diabetes was not a mandatory inclusion criteria for this trial, which is a major difference compared to previous trials. In addition, given the time frame of uh, the conduct of this trial, there was actually low uptake of angiotensin receptor, neprilysin inhibitor, uh, that class of medication, sacubitril-valsartan. So what are the outcomes relevant to this trial? Well, the primary outcome we were looking at was the composite of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure. Worsening heart failure was defined as heart failure hospitalization or an urgent visit um, to a clinic requiring the use of an IV diuretic. Secondary outcomes in the DAPA-HF trial include the composite of heart failure hospitalization and cardiovascular death, total heart failure hospitalizations, a change in the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire from baseline, and this is to indicate levels of symptom burden related to heart failure, and whether or not there was worsening renal function, which was defined as progression to end-stage renal disease or a decline in GFR of more than 50%. Some major safety outcomes studied in this trial include development of diabetic ketoacidosis, renal events, uh, symptomatic hypoglycemia, volume depletion, or increased risk of amputations. So what came of this trial? Well, regarding the primary outcome of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure, we see that there was a, a significant reduction in the dapaglyphosin arm, which was uh, statistically significant. And there was no difference in the primary outcome based on the diabetic status of the patient. And this was a really exciting finding that the 40% of patients with type 2 diabetes in the trial had the same benefit as those without diabetes. 
Regarding some of the key secondary outcomes in DAPA-HF, there was a marked improvement in heart failure symptom burden. Cardiovascular death was actually significantly reduced. And finally, there was no significant adverse safety signal. In fact, serious adverse events were numerically higher in the placebo arm compared to the dapagliflozin arm. In addition, there was no signal for increased renal events. Moving on to another trial of uh, SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure, this is now studying the, the compound empagliflozin, so-called emperor reduced trial from published in 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine. So in this, it was similar patient inclusion criteria to DAPA-HF, though the minimum natriuretic peptide level was a little bit higher. The distribution of patients was relatively similar to DAPA-HF, but you'll see that the median NT-pro-BNP level was higher, which may indicate um, uh, advanced progression of heart failure compared to DAPA-HF. In addition, only 50% uh, of patients had type 2 diabetes in this trial. And because it was conducted later, there was higher baseline use of angiotensin receptor nephrolysis inhibitors as compared to the dapagliflozin trial DAPA-HF. What outcomes are relevant in Emperor Reduced? Well, we have uh, the primary outcome of cardiovascular death or first heart failure hospitalization. Again, highly statistically significant. Again, the consistent effect independent of diabetes status of the patient. Secondary outcomes that are relevant, there was a 30% reduction of heart failure hospitalization. The rate of EGR to EFR declined was actually an improvement in uh, EGFR over the, the time period of the trial with, with uh, empagliflozin compared to placebo. So where does this fit in? So um, you'll see here uh, the figure Dr. Valicati had alluded to before with novel heart failure therapies over the last uh, almost 40 years. Um, so we'll add in here to our compounds dapagliflozin based on DAPA-HF and empagliflozin based on emperor-reduced. So to recap some of the benefiting populations of heart failure, those with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease uh, and diabetes, those at high risk of coronary artery disease and, and having uh, diabetes, those with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with or without diabetes. In addition, not highlighted uh, in this talk are patients with chronic kidney disease who derive benefit um, related to uh, reduction in uh, progression of renal outcomes with SGLT2 inhibitors. And that includes patients both with and without diabetes. Well, what's left? Well, there's a large uh, uh, swath of heart failure patients with preserved ejection fraction, which we've not yet talked about. So the first paper to address uh, patients with preserved ejection fraction was this one, Empagliflozin and Heart Failure with Preserved EF, published again in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021. So Emperor Preserved, as it's so um, called, we looked at patients whose ejection fraction was more than 40%, and NYHA class 2 to 4 again. Um, again, we had a uh, natriuretic peptide cutoff level, which notably is uh, significantly lower than the, the cutoff level required for patients who reduced the ejection fraction, which is uh, related to the lower baseline natriuretic peptide level in patients with HEFPEF. Some baseline characteristics in this trial were up to almost 50% females. Um, again, predominantly white with smaller minorities of Asian and black patients. 
predominantly class two heart failure with um, about 18% class three. And you'll see there the anti-pro BNP was uh, 950 on average, which is about 50% less than um, the reduced EF trials. Again, diabetes status was not mandated for inclusion, so about 50% of patients had diabetes. What about the outcomes an emperor preserved? Well, the primary outcome was, again, cardiovascular death or time to first heart failure hospitalization, markedly reduced or improved with empagliflozin with the hazard ratio of 0.79. And again, this effect was primarily driven by reduction in time to first heart failure hospitalization, which was consistently seen across um, diabetes status, either having it or not having it. Some secondary outcomes that are relevant, there was a 27% lower um, uh, rate of total heart failure hospitalizations in the empagliflozin arm. And again, uh, the EGFR actually improved over time uh, with empagliflozin compared to placebo. Next is the DELIVER trial, uh, dapagliflozin um, in patients with mild reducer preserved EF. So this is looking at the dap, uh, dapagliflozin compound published in 2021. So major inclusion of this trial include ejection fraction of greater than 40%. Patients had to have structural heart disease, which included either left atrial enlargement or left ventricular hypertrophy on echocardiogram. Uh, again, NYHA class two to four, and an NT-proBNB cutoff of 300. Uh, interestingly, in this trial, the, the minimum uh, GFR was greater than 25, which is lower than some prior trials, which were looking specifically more at 30. Some uh, key baseline characteristics of patients in deliver Again, almost 50% female, similar um, distribution of white, Asian, and black patients. You'll see there about 75% NYHA2, 25% NYHA3. The NT-BNP was higher in deliver compared to um, uh, the empagliflozin trial. And again, almost 50% diabetes. What are the outcomes that happened with dapagliflozin in a, in a preserver ejection fraction or mild reduced ejection fraction population? Looking at cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure, again, highly statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.8, uh, largely driven by reduction in worsening heart failure. So that's uh, defined similarly to previously as uh, either heart failure hospitalization or urgent need for IV diuretic. And again, consistently seen across diabetes status. Interestingly, with this trial, we see results similar both above and below the ejection fraction cutoff of 60%. Some other benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors. So these are largely based on observational data from um, some other seminal papers in this field, but there is a reduced risk of serious ventricular arrhythmias. There's reduced risk of atrial defibrillation burden. Importantly, there's a reduced risk of hyperkalemia with concurrent guideline-directed medical therapy use. So as Dr. Valakati had mentioned, sometimes we're limited in use of uh, our class of medication MRAs or um, ACE inhibitors, ARBs or ARNIs because of hyperkalemia. And adding an SGLT2 inhibitor can actually reduce the rate of hyperkalemia, allowing integration of the four pillars of uh, heart failure therapy. In addition, patients who are hospitalized with acute heart failure have an improved diuretic effect when they're on an SGLT2 inhibitor.
So finally, I want to talk about a few novel therapies for heart failure. The first is uh, Verisigwat, which was studied in 2020 uh, in a New England Journal paper. So this is an oral soluble guanylyl cyclase stimulator. So the Victoria trial was the uh, primary trial studying this, looking at patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, noting that this is a high-risk cohort. These are patients who had a recent hospital, heart failure hospitalization or recently required IV diuretic. What are the outcomes of the Victoria trial? Well, overall it was positive, driven, uh, which was uh, the composite of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization, once again driven primarily by reduced risk of heart failure hospitalization. There was a 10% absolute risk reduction in the primary outcome. This was positive, although maybe a little bit underwhelming in such a high-risk cohort. And the subgroup analysis suggests that there's less benefit in the sickest patients, those with the highest anti-BMPs, the quartile here in this trial of more than 5,300. Finally, coming to omicamptiv micarbol. So this is a compound that's an oral selective myosin activator studied in a 2020 paper, the Galactic HF trial. In this trial, we were looking at patients with heart failure reduced ejection fraction defined as an EF of less than 35%. The primary outcomes we were looking at were a composite of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. This was again mildly positive with a 2% absolute risk reduction driven by reduced heart failure hospitalization. Subgroup analysis from omicamptiv micarbo suggests possible heterogeneity with the most uh, improved outcomes in patients with ejection fractions that were lower, less than 28%, or systolic blood pressure that was less than 100 millimeters mercury. And that may be seen because this compound does not lower blood pressure as many other guideline-directed medical therapy does in the heart failure population. So it's um, easier to, to build on a regimen if someone already has chronic hypotension. And finally, in the COSMIC HF trial, Omicamptin Micarbo improved the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, uh, suggesting reduced symptom burden and heart failure. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, that was extremely helpful, especially going through all the different trials. And I must say, cardiology, they just have the best acronyms for their trials. All these emperor preserve, emperor <laughs> reduce. I, I love it. Well, thank you so much for going through all that data. I do have some questions. So, um, Ajay, if you wouldn't mind kind of summarizing the different pillars of heart failure medicine, what are the four medicines we should get all our patients on? Yeah, so the four pillars, the beta blockers, the evidence-based beta blockers, are metoprolol, succinate, bisoprolol, or carbidolol, spironolactone and epinone, or mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, mm -hmm. SGL2 inhibitors, so dapagliflozin, empagliflozin, and then asoranab, uh, any kind of asoranab, uh -huh. But ARNI, which is angiotensin neutralizing inhibitor, is preferred over an ASO or an ARM. So mm -hmm. that would be the four pillars. Beta blocker, MRA, mineralocorticoid uh -huh. receptor antagonist, SGL2 inhibitor, ARNI. Got it. Thank you so much. Now, that's a lot of medicines, um, which could be hard to tolerate, as you mentioned, due to many reasons, hypotension, hyperkalemia, and also cost. I mean, it can't be cheap to have all those different copays each month. Is there an order of importance on which medicines to start? Yeah. So 
we definitely like to add a low dose of all the medications and that's mm -hmm. what we try to do because there's synergistic benefit with mm -hmm. adding a low dose of all the medications. Uh, what we've started out, so going back in 1987, we have we started with our ACE, or ACE inhibitor and then a beta blocker. So those would be the drugs. So beta blocker and RNA if we can and mm -hmm. then on top of it either spironolactone, aldosterone antagonist or SGLT inhibitor. So I, we start with RNA or beta blocker to begin with. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you so much. Now, um, what one medicine, Ajay, that you didn't mention was a loop diuretic. I feel like all of my heart failure patients are on verosamide or torsamide or something like that. Um, is that not an important medicine in heart failure? So loop diuretic, furosemide, torsamide, bumetanide, they provide symptomatic benefits. So they help with symptoms in heart failure. They mm -hmm. do not provide survival benefits. So they mm -hmm. don't make you live longer. Got it. So okay. uh, when we start and we, we do have start them on like furosemide or bumetanide and that can help with the symptoms. And if we can, we try, if the patient can tolerate going off the medication, we actually sometimes get them off the medication. Mm, and okay. on top of it, uh, like our knee has some diuretic effects, spironolactone uh -huh. has some diuretic effect, SGL2 inhibitor has some diuretic effect. So sometimes when we get patients on all the four pillars, we might be able to get them off furosemide. Perfect, that's really helpful. Now, Indra, does the cause of the heart failure change your management strategy? So, for example, um, would you treat someone with heart failure from coronary disease the same as someone who has heart failure from myocarditis? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, the, the main uh, difference in how we approach patients is regarding their ejection fraction. So those with reduced ejection fractions, regardless of the etiology of the ejection fraction, would qualify for the four pillars of heart failure treatment that Dr. Balakati has mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and whether that's from coronary disease or idiopathic, a viral myocarditis, um, sarcoidosis, any cause really we would use those four pillars. Um, what is different is we may expect that uh, their benefit gained in terms of improvement in ejection fraction may be a little bit different based on the etiology, but uh, we still think that the outcomes of patients uh, are, are improved regardless of the etiology. If mm -hmm. patients with preserved ejection fraction, depending on the cause of the heart failure, we may select some class of medications preferentially over others. I'm thinking about things like restrictive cardiomyopathy, such as amyloid heart disease. Um, mm -hmm. In that, we tend to sometimes avoid uh, things like vasodilators or excessive beta blockade, and we might choose preferentially some of the other classes of medications. So a little bit is patient-centric. Mm -hmm. Got it. Now, um, when you went over the different trials for the SGLT2s, what I heard was empaglifosin and dapaglifosin. Are those the two that we should really be prescribing for heart failure patients, or can we use any of the SGLT2? Yeah, um, so I think... In general, it's thought that there's a class effect um, with SGLT2 inhibitors. There are um, some smaller uh, observational outcomes-based trials with other SGLT2 inhibitors, which have mm -hmm. shown benefit. Um, there's a combination SGLT1, SGLT2 inhibitor, which is also um, a, a beneficial uh, medication. But given the, um, the weight of the evidence with empaglifosin and dapaglifosin, it really is one of those two agents that is our preferred um, for heart failure patients. Because of cost or access, if someone is not able to get those medications, um, I would be willing to use another medication in the class. Mm -hmm. But um, 
just with the forthcoming warning to the patient that it hasn't exclusively been studied as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when you also went through the data, I noticed that it seemed like women and black patients were really underrepresented in those trials. Um, Is there uh, more data coming out for those populations or do you have any idea why they're underrepresented? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great point. Um, Unfortunately, uh, our cardiovascular trials tend to not represent the patient population well. And a lot of it has to do with where the trials are conducted and um, which patient population have has access to clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is an important problem for our field that we just don't know whether the evidence basis is there for the population we're necessarily treating mm-hmm. based on the trials that are out there. I think there's always an ongoing push to increase representation of underrepresented patient groups mm-hmm. um, in cardiovascular trials. And I, I think that that will be um, uh, seen going forward. Okay. Now, I know today we didn't really have time to go through um, surgeries or devices used for heart failure. Have we seen similar increases or improvements in technology um, uh, for those type of advanced therapies? Absolutely. Um, So uh, we specifically focus on sort of the medical management of heart failure, but there have been um, many advances in procedural treatment of heart failure, um, catheter-based procedure or or cardiac surgery type procedures. Mm -hmm. I want to highlight a few, including things like um, repair of regurgitant valves, um, uh, improvements in LVAD technology, which lead to reduced um, complications uh, mm-hmm. and improve mortality with these therapies. Awesome. Okay, that's really that's really great to hear. Now, Ajay, with six million people living with heart failure, um, do they all need a heart failure cardiologist? Who can be safely managed uh, by primary care or general cardiologist? So I would say all patients who have heart failure need to see a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a mnemonic uh, that American College of cardiology had proposed, which is I need help. And that's to encourage patients or at least the patients to be seen by a heart failure specialist. So it can be Googled anywhere. So I there stands for inotrope, N stands for NVHA functional class 4, E stands for end organ dysfunction, which is either kidney or liver dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And D stands for defibrillation. Uh, Another E stands for EF less than 35%. So if the patient has the EF less than 35% and defibrillation is the patient got shocked mm-hmm. by the ICD uh, more than once, then that would be the need. Then H is heart failure hospitalization. So more than two, two or more in three months, mm-hmm. three or more in six months. E is elevated natriuretic peptides. L is low blood pressure, blood pressure less than 90. P mm-hmm. is poor prognostic markers. So uh, having to withdraw beta blockers or mm-hmm. ACE inhibitors because of inability to tolerate the medication. So I need help is the mnemonic <laughs> for heart failure patients to be seen by a heart failure specialist. But I, I think all patients need, all heart failure patients uh-huh. need to be seen by a cardiologist. Okay. Well, that's great. That That's a great mnemonic. I mean, cardiology really does have the most fun mnemonics. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Ajay? Yeah. So for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, all patients, I would recommend that they be on the four pillars, four pillars of heart failure medication, which is ARNI. If ARNI is uh, cost prohibitive, ACE or an ARB, uh, beta blockers, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, spironolactone or epilrenone, and SGL2 inhibitors, dapagliflozin or empagliflozin. That's for reduced EF. For preserved EF, there's benefit with dapagliflozin or empagliflozin. And 
other medications depending on the disease etiology. And Indra. Yeah, so I think um, unfortunately, as we alluded to earlier, heart failure is an increasing problem with uh, significant associated morbidity and mortality. And this is a problem that's only growing. So I, I think it's important to recognize when heart failure symptoms develop and we not just to brush up symptoms like dyspnea or fatigue as regular aging. Um, and I think getting the patients to the right treatments uh, in whatever setting they can get will improve those outcomes. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. Our audience can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join, join us again next week. Our program will be on the dizzy patient with my guests, Dr. Desi Shu and Matthew Balick. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.